Welcome to today's meeting of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, the founder of Climate One, and it is my honor right now to introduce Henry Pollack, professor of geophysics at the University of Michigan, who will discuss his new book, A World Without Ice, Man's Impact on Climate Change. Please, Professor. Thank you very much. It's a special pleasure to be here uh, at the Commonwealth Club of California. I've listened to the discussions from the Commonwealth Club on radio many times, but I never had a visual image of what the Commonwealth Club was actually like. So uh, now uh, it's indelible on my memory. I want to talk to you uh, about my book, but I'm going to take a moment or two to uh, tell you a little bit about myself so you know where I'm coming from with this book. I am basically an earth scientist. I've had lots of different research tracks in my career, uh, the latest of which has been uh, addressing climate change from a particular geophysical viewpoint. I take the temperature of the rocks of the Earth's crusts and typically sending thermometers down drill holes and, and measuring uh, temperature variation as we go down in the Earth. This work was originally uh, focused on measuring the heat coming out of the interior of the Earth and relating that to tectonics and earthquakes and volcanoes. But uh, in, as time moved on, we had answered many of those questions, and uh, climate change was coming into the fore as a scientific topic uh, towards the end of the 80s, early 90s. So I took a look at some of our measurements down boreholes, and we had always noticed there were a lot of little fluctuations near the surface, uh, and we would just ignore those and go deeper to look for the signal from the deep interior. But we thought maybe there was a signal in these uh, shallower measurements as well. So we went back and re-examined our data uh, with the idea of looking for a signal in the shallow part of our measurements. And lo and behold, there was indeed a signal, and it was a climate signal, one that uh, would uh, let us reconstruct climate uh, back several centuries the basic technique that uh, this employs, I'll give you an analogy. If you put a rock next to a campfire, the rock will gradually warm up in its interior. And the next morning, even after the campfire is out, uh, if you would drill a little hole into the rock, you'd discover that the interior was still warm. It had a memory of last night when there was a campfire. And with a little mathematics, you can... Uh, determine how brightly the campfire was burning and how long it burned. In other words, you could reconstruct the the climate that that rock felt uh, in earlier times. And that basic principle works for the Earth as a whole. Uh, We can take temperatures down into the rocks of the Earth and ask what happened at the surface to produce that, that profile of temperature. And so we were able to take boreholes from all over the globe Uh, and uh, reconstruct uh, temperature changes over the past 500 years, which, and sometimes longer, which uh, gives us a glimpse both in the industrial and pre-industrial period and uh, therefore can give you some insight into uh, factors that have changed through the transition from pre-industrial to industrial. So that's my background uh, in, in doing climate science. And I had the... Uh, Good fortune, I think, to have my work noticed by uh, 
well, by Al Gore, who's had many different hats on. But when I first encountered him, he was Senator Gore from Tennessee. And uh, one day I got a telephone call that uh, asked me if I would testify in front of his uh, committee uh, about this new technique of reconstructing past climates. And so I I spent uh, a day in Senate hearings with some other climate scientists. And uh, Mr. Gore conducted those hearings uh, with great insight, uh, good questions. Uh, I was very impressed that he, uh, the grasp he had of the scientific uh, uh, facets of climate change. So uh, that was my first exposure to Mr. Gore. And then uh, as my own research continued to, uh, to grow and, and mature, we published a paper in Science, which is the uh, journal of the, the flagship journal of the American Association for Advancement of Science. And uh, the next day, I, I got another telephone call, and it was uh, nominally from uh, the White House. And by then, Mr. Gore was in the White House. And it said that Mr. Gore had, uh, the caller said that Mr. Gore had read my paper and wanted me to come to Washington and talk to him about it. And I was skeptical. I, I was sure that it was a, a big practical joke being played on me by one of my colleagues in the department who uh, wanted to see if I would take the bait. Uh, but as I talked on, I decided this really was a call from the White House. <laughs> and uh, so when the request came, could I come to Washington and, and talk with him about it the next day, I said, well, I, I, I'd have to check my teaching schedule. But but I think I can make it. And so the uh, next day I, I went to Washington and spent the day uh, in the Office of Science and Technology Policy, uh, about an hour with Mr. Gore and with Neil Lane, who was the president's science advisor, and then uh, much of the rest of the day with the, the staff in OSTP. And uh, so that was my, my second encounter uh, with Mr. Gore. Another five years uh, into the future, uh, fast forward, and I got another call, and it was, again, Mr. Gore's staff. Uh, It had come after the film The Inconvenient Truth had been uh, uh, put out and had such uh, widespread viewing. And uh, he he was planning something called the Climate Project, which some of you in the audience are very familiar with. And uh, the Climate Project was uh, designed to uh, bring community volunteers uh, to a short training session in Nashville, which is Mr. Gore's home, uh, so that they could uh, present the scientific story of climate change as outlined in the Inconvenient Truth film and uh, and then go back home and speak to schools and congregations and service clubs, uh, alumni clubs, whatever whatever audience you could uh, put together and continue to spread the word about climate change. Now, I mentioned that long uh, background uh, in part because in addition to my scientific work, I I also have been puzzled by the disconnect of uh, the the almost certain uh, conclusions that scientists have come up with about the reality of climate change uh, and that humans are involved with it uh, nine chances out of ten. Uh, and the, the uh, perception by the general public that there, you know, still half the people don't even think that climate change is happening and that uh, the uh, 
that humans are a part of it, uh, well, that's even further down their list. And so I've, I've been very interested in, in trying to reach uh, the general non-scientific public and take every opportunity to talk about climate change because I think it is very real and that uh, humans are, are playing a big part in it and the consequences will not be pretty and we don't have a lot of time to dilly-dally about uh, thinking about whether it's something we want to address. So all of that uh, is uh, the background to this book, which is part of my uh, attempts to communicate with the general public about uh, the uh, realities of climate change. Now, the book uh, is about ice, climate, and people. Uh, ice has played a role in the development of Earth's landscape, uh, its climate, and has provided uh, certain constraints on the uh, development and, and spread of human civilization. And there has been a reciprocal impact uh, in the present day about uh, people having an effect on, on the planet's ice. And the story of, of climate change is, is the common theme that, that is woven throughout this book. Now, the, uh, the question that I often receive is, why did I choose ice as the, the vehicle to tell this story? Uh, why is it that ice is, in my view, an a ideal prism uh, to view the, the story of climate change? There are, in my mind, three principal reasons. The first is that ice is a big player in the global climate system. Uh, ice is a, a very reflective substance. Uh, any of you have uh, been skiing, uh, and uh, if you're not careful, you can get sunburn from the reflections from below you, not just a, from the sun above you, but uh, reflections from the snow and ice uh, can give you quite a good sunburn. Uh, so ice uh, on the globe, it sits uh, presently like two white skull caps uh, in the polar regions, and the, these white uh, regions reflect a, a lot of energy back to space that would otherwise uh, warm the Earth. Uh, and so if we uh, have a loss of ice, we're also uh, going to see uh, a greater amount of energy that is uh, falling on darker surfaces and being absorbed and uh, leading to a warming. So the mere fact that uh, ice is a prominent player in the climate system of the globe was one reason I wanted to uh, uh, use it as a theme for the book. A second reason is that ice is a, a sensitive and unambiguous indicator of climate change. Uh, when, because the, earth, the ice of the Earth is very close to its melting point, uh, over the Earth, uh, just a few degrees of temperature change can lead to significant changes in the uh, distribution of ice on Earth. And so when we, we watch uh, ice in retreat uh, due to uh, some modest increases in, in temperature over the globe, you can see how, how sensitive uh, ice is to this equilibrium uh, it, that it has uh, with the Earth's temperature. And I, I like ice also as a, an indicator of climate change for its uh, political neutrality. What I say about ice in the book is that I'm going to read it to you. It's the only part of this will be called a book reading. Uh, ice asks no questions, presents no arguments, 
reads no newspapers, listens to no debates. It's not burdened by ideology and carries no political baggage as it crosses the threshold from solid to liquid. It just melts. And I think that in that, in that context, ice is one of nature's best thermometers. Uh, you may not believe uh, man-made thermometers. We've heard arguments from the climate skeptics about those. But, uh, you know, ice is, is nature's thermometer. And uh, you just need to watch ice and you see climate change in action. So that, that was another reason that I chose ice as the uh, prism to view climate change. And the third reason was that the consequences of losing ice on Earth are, are very profound. Uh, in, in several different ways, but two are very prominent. One is the, the loss of uh, mountaintop glaciers in the mid and, and uh, tropical latitudes of Earth. Uh, these glaciers, uh, which uh, reside in such places as Rocky Mountain, or, or uh, Glacier National Park, a little bit in Rocky Mountain National Park, uh, on top of the high peaks of the Andes in South America, on many of the peaks in the uh, Himalaya in, and in the Tibetan Plateau of Asia, uh, these glaciers are, are melting. They're retreating. Uh, they're losing their ice. And these, these glaciers, along with the seasonal snowfall, provide the agricultural water and the domestic water for about a third of the Earth's population. And while the ice exists, uh, there's still an ample supply of water for those purposes. Once the glaciers are gone, the, the annual snowfall is inadequate to meet the needs that are, are the consumption levels that are uh, presently uh, uh, taking place. So I'm very concerned about the impact on large numbers of people. Uh, the uh, as I said, about a third of the Earth's population will be affected by the loss of, of mountain glaciers. The other big impact is that as you melt ice on the continents, uh, it gradually runs downhill uh, and enters the ocean and provides new water to the oceans that will raise sea level. Now, melted Ice is not the only reason sea level rises. Uh, sea level also rises because the oceans themselves are warming and thermal expansion of uh, ocean water is a contributor to the rise of sea level as well. And so, but the net effect is that sea level is rising uh, due both to the warming and, and to the addition of new water. And a, a meter of sea level rise, so around three feet of sea level rise, uh, will impact 100 million people around the globe. When you look at the number of people who live in various elevation uh, bands above sea level, the lowest level from sea level to one meter high is home to 100 million people. And uh, by the, if you would raise sea level even more, of course, you would be impacting more people. And so it's a, uh, it will lead to a very serious dislocation of the human population of the globe with only modest uh, increases in sea level. And so the, the significance of uh, raising sea level uh, through the loss of ice uh, is an issue that uh, also, I think, uh, 
is a reason to use ice as uh, the theme for the book. Now, the, the structure of the book is uh, to look at the relationship between ice and people uh, through a panorama of time. And I, I start during the uh, maximum of the last ice age, 20,000 years ago, when there was much more ice on the continents and many fewer people. The extent of ice uh, 20,000 years ago uh, in North America, it covered virtually all of Canada and extended into the USA as far south as the Missouri River in the west and uh, the Ohio River in the east. And in fact, those rivers are where they are because they were carrying away the meltwater from the glaciers as the last ice age ended. And those are, are big river systems that today carry much less water than they did at the time uh, when the, the ice was melting. So uh, there was a lot more ice. In Europe, uh, the ice extended uh, uh, south to about the Midlands of the United Kingdom, uh, covered much of northern Europe, uh, some of uh, northern Russia and northern Asia, and, of course, high peaks in, in the Himalaya and uh, even here in California, uh, the Sierra was uh, the home of big glaciers and, um, you know, Yosemite Valley is a marvelous uh, example of glacial sculpting that was a gift of the last ice age to uh, the present uh, occupants of Earth. And uh, other beautiful examples of the legacy of the last ice age are uh, you know, the Great Lakes uh, of the mid-continent, uh, the... Finger Lakes of New York are, are big gouges that were scratched out in the bedrock of New York by the advancing ice. Uh, Long Island is a, an outwash plain and moraine of, of uh, glacial origins. You can tell I'm a geologist and I see uh, all of these topographic features in, in terms of geological origins. Another facet of the last ice age that uh, affected people was that when you have so much ice on the continents, you have taken water out of the oceans to do that. And so ice and water are like primates on a seesaw. When there is a lot of ice on the continents, there's less water in the oceans. And conversely, when you have less ice on the continents, there's more water in the oceans. So the last ice age saw the uh, a depression of sea level by almost 400 feet. And it was that uh, lowering of sea level that provided the avenues of, uh, of a walkway for the peopling of all the continents. Uh, at that time, uh, the English Channel between uh, England and France was uh, a dry walkway. The Bering Strait was uh, dry, and people migrated from Asia to the Americas. So the lowering of sea level provided pathways for human migration. So now the, we move to the present day when there's a lot less ice and a lot more people. Now, the lot less ice, uh, you can only think of it as less ice in, in terms of what there used to be, uh, but ice today sits mainly in two big patches, one on Greenland and one on Antarctica. The Antarctic pile is bigger than Greenland's, and there is ice that covers the Arctic Ocean. Uh, this is called sea ice. It is just frozen seawater. 
and it's much thinner than the ice caps on Greenland and Antarctica, but it plays an important role in the reflection of sunlight that I mentioned earlier. So we have much less ice, and we have a lot more people. At the peak of the last ice age, there were perhaps a million people uh, scattered all over uh, the globe, or almost all over the globe. And the population was perhaps a million, which I think is probably about the population of San Jose uh, close by, or pick out any other city you want, but imagine all of those people distributed over the globe. It's a much uh, lower population density than we have today. Now, since the peak of the last ice age 20,000 years ago, people uh, have uh, multiplied, uh, like the stars in the sky or the sand on the beach is the usual analogy. But uh, the Earth's population reached 1 billion people in nine, uh, 1800. It took almost 20,000 years to accumulate 1 billion people. But it only took another 130 years to accumulate another billion people. By 1930, the population of the globe was 2 billion. And it only took another 25 years to reach 3 billion in 1955. And it only took uh, another 19 years to reach 4 billion in 1974. And uh, right now we're close to 7 billion, and uh, by 2020 or so we'll be at 8 billion, and by mid-century mid at 9 billion, according to the United Nations projections. This is an astounding growth in the human population. Uh, just to give you a feeling for it, if you are trying to create 7 billion people uh, by giving birth one, one new person every second and no one ever died, it would take more than 200 years of a baby every second to equal 7 billion people. So we've had uh, a lot more people on Earth uh, who are able to uh, interact with the Earth, and they've become uh, much more powerful because they learn to use energy, fossil energy mostly, uh, in the last couple hundred years. And as a result, uh, we have a lot of people that are uh, using a lot of energy, and they're doing a lot to the earth. And of course, I'm going to talk to you about what they're doing to the climate, but let me just put into context what other things are happening. People move more earth today than rivers do. Uh, people in, in the east, in the Appalachian Mountains, mining for coal, uh, they are employing something called mountaintop removal. It's, a, it's quite a graphic term where they simply blow the bedrock off the uh, tops of mountains to expose the coal beds. They throw the bedrock into the valleys uh, adjacent. Uh, and that's happened to almost 500 uh, separate sites along the crest of the Appalachian. Uh, we uh, have uh, interfered with the natural flow of every river in the USA of any magnitude. There are no unfettered rivers flowing to the sea. Uh, we have major dams on, on virtually every stream, uh, sometimes multiple dams, that uh, control the flow of the river uh, entirely. 
in uh, Asia, uh, we had diverted the waters of uh, waters that fed the Aral Sea. The Aral Sea, uh, 50 years ago, was a body of water about the size of Lake Huron. It's one of the largest bodies of water on the globe. Uh, today, it's uh, nearly dried out, and there are fishing vessels sitting on the sand uh, as the water that uh, used to uh, flow into the Aral Sea has been diverted for uh, agriculture in uh, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. We have washed chemicals off the land uh, through the chemicals applied as fertilizers or simply the uh, impervious services of our big cities. When we have rainfall, it sends chemicals into the streams and, and they make their way to the ocean. And we're producing dead zones in the ocean where uh, literally nothing can live because of the chemical pollution. We have... Uh, injected a lot of material into the atmosphere. Uh, you'll recall uh, days when Los Angeles was uh, smog-covered, and of course it's not alone. Many other cities uh, were that way. Uh, and uh, that got transported as acid rain and fell on our forests and, and in our lakes, killing the trees and, and the fish. And uh, we have done other things to the atmosphere. We injected uh, a lot of chlorofluorocarbons into the atmosphere and unwittingly created uh, a loss of stratospheric ozone that uh, we call the ozone hole over Antarctica. And incidentally, we have also pumped a lot of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, and that uh, has the property of, of uh, trapping heat that is trying to uh, leave the Earth and return to space, and as a result, it acts as a blanket that is warming the earth. And so our uh, increase in the effectiveness of the, uh, of the greenhouse layer in our atmosphere has led to a uh, warming of the earth of uh, little more than one degree Celsius or about two degrees Fahrenheit over the past century. And what has the impact been of that? Well... The mountain glaciers that I described uh, have all been retreating in their valleys. The, uh, sometimes the retreat is, is many miles. Sometimes it's, it's a, a, you know, only a fraction of a mile. But it's, it's crystal clear that mountain glaciers everywhere are retreating. And uh, the, at the pace of the retreat, uh, we'll see the last of mountain glaciers in the next few decades. Speculation that Glacier National Park will have lost its namesake glaciers uh, in another two or three decades. Kilimanjaro on the equator in Africa uh, probably won't last uh, more than another decade. And mountain glaciers everywhere, uh, if you're looking for uh, a time frame of, of the consequences of climate change, uh, the mountain glaciers uh, are on the decadal time scale. Another big change in, in the ice of the Earth is in the Arctic Ocean. The Arctic Ocean freezes every winter, and over the summer, part of it breaks up as summertime comes to the Arctic. And uh, the amount of uh, the loss of summer sea ice uh, has been monitored by uh, satellites uh, since the late 70s, but even prior to that, submarines uh, from both Russia and the USA were prowling beneath the, uh, the Arctic uh, sea ice 
uh, spying on each other and mapping topography and the like, and incidentally giving us a record of the sea ice distribution uh, ever since the beginning of the Cold War. So we have records uh, gathered by the military uh, for the last half of the 20th century, and what we see is that the, the loss of summertime sea ice in the Arctic is accelerating. And uh, uh, today, the area of summertime sea ice is only about 60% of what it was uh, in mid-century. And uh, the thickness of the sea ice is, is down by half. And the, uh, for the first time in human history, both the Northwest Passage and the Northeast Passage from uh, North America and Europe to Asia were both open uh, last year. The projections of uh, the loss of Arctic sea ice in the future is that we'll see an ice-free Arctic Ocean in the summertime in just a few decades. And that will bring big changes uh, to the Arctic. Uh, there will be increased exploration for minerals and, and petroleum. There will be fisheries fleets moving into the Arctic to, uh, to mine the, the fisheries that have been protected by the ice. Uh, there will be international posturing as to who owns the, uh, the terrain of the Arctic, which has been a, a question no one's cared much about while there was ice cover everywhere. But as it's becoming open, uh, we're, we're going to uh, see uh, international tensions rise. And there is even bigger ice losses that are underway that are ominous. Uh, the amount of ice on Greenland and the amount of ice on West Antarctica, which is the, the lesser pile of ice in the Antarctic, uh, is such that uh, each Greenland and West Antarctica could, if we would remove all the ice, and put it into the ocean, it would raise sea level, each one would raise sea level 20 feet. Now, uh, 20 feet is a big change in sea level, and I'm not predicting that we're going to lose all of the ice from either one. But uh, what we've noticed is that as summertime melting on Greenland, for instance, is creeping upward as the atmosphere is warming, we're finding more and more of the summer meltwater is plunging down fissures in the ice, crevasses, and going right to the base of the ice between where the ice sits on the rock, and it's lubricating the base of the ice, and the ice is slipping off much faster. The, the glaciers around Greenland are accelerating and delivering ice much faster than the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change had projected to uh, be taking place in their last report of 2007. And so we're, we're seeing the acceleration of ice loss from uh, both Greenland and West Antarctica dislodging huge pieces of ice shelves in the Antarctic and big uh, icebergs from the Greenland glaciers. And most projections of the rise in sea level uh, have changed from something on the order of uh, a foot and a half to two and a half feet in the IPCC report to somewhere between three and six feet at the end of the 21st century. And so the IPCC projections of sea level change are self-acknowledged as being lower, lower estimates, as being very conservative because of this new 
a phenomenon of increased ice dynamics as the glaciers are slipping off of the uh, of Greenland and West Antarctica. Now, six feet of climate change, or six feet of sea level rise, or even three feet, uh, would be dramatic changes to the face of the Earth. We, it would, uh, uh, dis as I say, three feet would displace 100 million people around the globe. Uh, our experience with, dis with climate refugees uh, that we garnered from Hurricane Katrina and the evacuation of New Orleans uh, involved 150,000 people. And uh, 100 million people over this century would be like seven Katrinas every year. And the globe is unprepared for the social problems that will come with the rise of sea level and the displacement of people around the globe. So we, we, have, a, we have some big problems facing us, and we, we need to, uh, number one, take our heads out of the sand, and uh, we can no longer think that it's a problem for the next generation. It's a problem that certainly will affect the next generation, uh, but it's not exactly a gift that we want to pass on uh, to them. And so uh, the issues of, of what to do about it uh, come up and, and how, how shall we forestall uh, climate change or the worst of it. Uh, some of it will come anyway because of what we've already done to the atmosphere. There will be inertia in the climate system. But there's some hope uh, that we can forestall uh, the very worst. Just a little bit on uh, the timetable of trying to mitigate climate change. Currently, the carbon dioxide level in the atmosphere is 390 parts per million. Uh, there are some who believe that it should never have gone over 350 uh, if we were to avoid uh, uh, unhappy consequences. Others think that 450 might forestall uh, the very worst. But we're currently, under the current industrial economy, pumping two to three parts per million into the atmosphere every year. And so you can do the arithmetic uh, to go from 390 to 450, which is the upper limit that people are thinking we could still deal with. Uh, at two or three parts per million each year, that gives us 20 or 30 years to totally stabilize the emissions of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And that's the, that's the task that's in front of us uh, in terms of uh, our individual choices and our uh, governmental actions. And uh, I'm not going to talk a whole lot about policy uh, from the podium, but I'd be happy to uh, engage with you in discussions uh, after I uh, shut up and, and sit down, so to speak. And uh, so, but it, the, the image that I'd like to leave with you is that unless there's some big changes soon, uh, we're going to see big changes on Earth that will not be uh, a pretty picture. And so uh, the urgency of the problem is real, and uh, we all have a responsibility to do what we can, uh, both individually and collectively, to forestall the, the very worst. So I'm going to uh, stop now and, again, thank all of you for coming, and thanks to the Commonwealth Club for the opportunity to speak uh, both here and, and to the wider audience through your uh, broadcasts. And I'd be delighted to uh, hear from you, 
your own comments and your own experience and your own questions uh, about this topic. So again, thank you very much, and I'd like to open up for discussion. Our thanks to Henry Pollack, professor of geophysics at the University of Michigan for his comments today here at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. And uh, Professor, we have a number of questions. I'd like to structure them. Perhaps we can talk a little bit about science. We have some air questions, some water questions, some land questions, all revolving around uh, ice. Uh, and one is that recently um, there's been talk of stabilization of the climate. I guess there's been eight years of some climate st temperature stability. Uh, is that significant? Does that mean that uh, the warming has stopped? There's some people who suggest that that raises some doubt about the, the trends over, over larger years. So let's address that one first. I'd be happy to. Uh, that's uh, a, uh, a distraction rather than a uh, total rethinking of what's happening to the climate. Uh, when we talk about uh, climate change, we're talking about long-term trends, uh, in this case uh, over uh, a century or more. Uh, we know that year by year, uh, the years are warmer and then colder, they oscillate, uh, and uh, even on longer time periods, like a decade or so, we sometimes see the, the climate uh, plateauing for a while. Uh, it happened during the 1950s, it happened in the uh, 1890s, and uh, for the last eight years, it has been stable, likewise, and not, not climbing inexorably. But you have to remember that the plateau that we're at now is a full uh, degree Celsius or two degrees warmer than it was a century ago. Uh, the decade of the, the first decade of, of this century is the warmest decade on history. And so we should never lose sight of that. Uh, you don't. You can't ask the climate to incrementally climb every year. There's too many variables that allow for uh, uh, interannual and interdecadal variability. But there's no question that we're much warmer than we were a century ago, and there have been pauses in the climb before. And climate models show that pauses are a very common phenomenon. So I don't. I don't put a lot of stock in that. Uh, in that argument that maybe climate uh, global warming is over. Uh, another question is about uncertainty inherent uh, in, in science. The IPCC and a lot of scientists often say 99% probability, that 1% is often seized upon by people who say, well, you're not sure, mm -hmm. there's doubt. Uh, so let's address the uncertainty and how sure uh, you are about these, these conclusions that you've, you've stated. Let me uh, here make a plug for an earlier book I wrote called Uncertain Science, Uncertain World and point out that uh, we live with uncertainty all the time and we seldom let it uh, uh, prevent us from making important decisions of life. Uh, uncertainty should not be lead to policy paralysis. Uncertainty is part of the world. And uh, the two uh, questions, uh, well, there are several questions, but the two that lead the list in, in terms of climate change are, one, is the climate changing? And two, are humans playing a significant role in it? Now, the IPCC in its 2007 report answered the first question by saying that climate change is unequivocal. That's an extremely strong word for scientists to use. Uh, unequivocal means, you know, there's no mistaking. There's no question left that, that every line of evidence is suggesting very strongly that climate is changing 
And, uh, and when you recognize the, the strength of, uh, of the whole body of independent lines of evidence, uh, you come away, come away very strongly persuaded that, yes, indeed, climate change is real. So the, the, the scientific community basically has said there really is no uncertainty that the climate is changing. Now, the question of uh, are humans a part of it was also addressed by the IPCC, and their conclusion was that uh, there is a 90% probability that humans are the major factor in climate change since the middle of the 20th century. Now, you can focus on the 10% that's left uh, as uncertainty, but I, I like to point out that uh, it, 9 out of 10 are very good odds. If you walked into a casino and the owner of the casino said, play any game you want, and I'll guarantee that you win nine chances out of ten, you'd, you'd probably walk out with a lot of cash in your pocket. Uh, so I, I think that you have to recognize what uh, a 90% probability really means. It's a very strong statement. Yes, with a little bit of wiggle room, but uh, you know, I wouldn't want to wiggle in that space. Uh, the the, the conclusion is very strong that humans are playing a very strong role. And, uh, and the, one of the reasons that I, dev I have a, an entire chapter in the book devoted to the human fingerprint on Earth or the human footprint. And, uh, and in it I talked about, you know, moving Earth and damming rivers and uh, polluting the oceans and polluting the atmosphere because I wanted to lay the groundwork that humans are doing a lot of things on Earth. Climate change is not just you know, the uh, principal effect is just one of many effects. And once you see all the things that humans are capable of doing, you recognize that humans are the most important geological agent on the planet today, then grasping uh, their role in climate change is, is less of a daunting task. So I, I think there will be uncertainty, but uh, if we wait for uncertainty to disappear, we'll wait forever, and uh, we have to move on in the face of uncertainty. I heard uh, Energy Secretary Chu talk last night about this, and he said if people were told that there was a 60% chance that an airplane you were on would, would make it to its destination safely, you would, you would think very differently. We make all sorts of decisions with, with different types of probability in our lives. Uh, and staying with probability, what do you think the probability is for significant collapse of Greenland or Western Antarctica ice sheets this century? The word collapse is a... Uh a loaded word. Uh, do I think that we're going to lose all the ice off of Greenland and, and Antarctica? No, I don't. But uh, might we lose enough ice off of it? Uh, as I said, the potential sea level rise from Greenland and West Antarctica is together 40 feet. Uh, do I think we might get a foot or two out of, uh, out of those bodies of ice? I think it's a real possibility. And so uh, my, my, when I said the, I think that they'll there's a decent likelihood that instead of two feet of sea level rise that the IPCC had uh, pointed to, uh, that we might see as much as uh, anywhere from three to six. And that would be the uh, contributions of ice from Greenland and West Antarctica. So to recap, you think we might see three to six this century? I, yeah. I Mind you, I'm not making a prediction, but uh, everything I see says that that's a real possibility. 
And how about the time frame? Because a lot of the science seems to focus on 2100, which is hard for a lot of humans to grok. And are you comfortable making things that are 2030, 2050, where people can sort of say, that'll happen in my lifetime, or at least my children, and not be so far in the future to be to challengingly remote? Well, there are three timescales, really. Uh, there's the decadal timescale, which uh, will you know, affect the mountain glaciers and the Arctic sea ice. Those are on decadal timescales, and so those are definitely things we're going to see uh, in both our lifetime and our children's lifetime. There's the century-long timescale, which is the one for significant ice loss from Greenland and West Antarctica. And, and again, I emphasize I'm not talking about losing at all. You don't have to lose at all. Uh, you, a relatively small fraction of that ice, if it drops into the ocean, will raise sea level another few feet. And I think that's on a century timescale. The total loss of uh, ice from East Antarctica, which has the potential for 200 uh, feet of sea level, I, I think is a long way away, in part because East Antarctica is very high, and so it's also very cold, and, and warming of the atmosphere from an extremely cold temperature doesn't lead to a lot of melting or, or ice loss. So the East Antarctic ice pile is much more stable and uh, I think we're looking at, on a millennial timescale, uh, for possible loss of significant amounts of that. And staying in Antarctica for a moment, is there truth to the drilling, that the drilling in Antarctica two miles down revealed tropical plants? Well, uh, you don't have to uh, drill through the ice. Uh, the rocks of the trans-Antarctic mountains, which stick up through the ice, uh, have coal beds in them. And so the answer is very definitely yes, that Antarctica in its geological history many millions of years ago was in a more tropical location. But the processes of plate tectonics have uh, moved it south and put it over the pole. And uh, since it's been at the pole uh, and, and glaciated over the last 30 million years or so, uh, there's been no tropical plants growing. Henry Pollock is professor of geophysics at the University of Mission, and he's discussing a world without ice at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Another question from the audience is, what are the implications of permafrost melting? Permafrost uh, is frozen ground, and much of the Arctic uh, surrounding the Arctic Ocean uh, is underlain by permafrost in Alaska, northern Canada, northern Scandinavia, Siberia, uh, and the like. And uh, the permafrost in some places goes very deep. It's, it's a frozen, in fact, a frozen relic of the last ice age, and uh, it's never warmed up enough to uh, eliminate per permafrost. Now, currently, we are seeing the permafrost softening and, and melting. Uh, one of the best indicators of that is something called tundra travel days in Alaska, which are the number of days you can drive a, a truck or a vehicle across the frozen ground and have a good solid foundation. Uh, that uh, duration of time has shrunk by months uh, as the permafrost has softened. And uh, now the number of months you can drive across the tundra, I think, is reduced to about four months, uh, whereas it used to be almost twice that long. So we are seeing uh, the permafrost softening and melting. And in Siberia, the same is true. We're seeing uh, uh, longer periods uh, where we're getting melting in the summertime, and uh, there are little lakes forming that, uh, from the meltwater. There's methane bubbling out uh, in these lakes, 
the permafrost is well known to contain a lot of uh, organic material that will release methane. And since methane itself is a greenhouse gas, there's concern about uh, another melting episode that will simply add more greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. The good news there is that the, the rate at which you can melt permafrost is governed by uh, the physics of heat diffusion going down into the earth, and that's a slow process. So the, uh, the, the time scale of total disruption of the permafrost is a long one. Uh, it's not a trivial one, but uh, it's not a problem that will reach a tipping point and suddenly uh, lead to huge amounts uh, coming out. So that, that's more of a, a centuries and millennial time scale problem uh, that we need to be aware of, but it's uh, perhaps a, you know, a little longer drawn out phenomenon. It is making, as you mentioned, oil accessible in that in that area, both on the on land and and at sea. And, and I traveled up there in 2007, and there was a lot of local people who liked the idea of oil drilling up there because it would affect their, uh, r- frankly, very poverty-stricken subsistence living and had thoughts of, like, who are we to say they can't drill in their water up there? So let's address the oil drilling both from a geologic standpoint as well as an um, accessibility standpoint. Well, I, I think that there's little question that there will be uh, petroleum and natural gas possibilities in the Arctic Ocean. Uh, the continental shelves nearly everywhere have been productive, and uh, there's little reason to think that the continental shelves of the Arctic are going to uh, be different. And so uh, there will be uh, great interest. The U.S. Geological Survey has already done an estimate of what the possible petroleum reserves of the Arctic Ocean will be. And uh, we've seen drilling ships already drilling the sedimentary uh, record at the bottom of the Arctic Ocean for scientific purposes. But what it has done, of course, is to demonstrate that it's entirely feasible to have drilling operations in the Arctic. And uh, surely the the uh, exploration companies will be there in short order. Uh, as to who owns the continental shelves, there's some great debate. The Arctic Ocean has a, a feature that crosses from Asia to North America. And in a sense, it's a, a continental shelf that connects the two. Well, uh, every country can claim the continental shelf that's attached to their territory, and but this is attached to several territories, so it's leading to a geopolitical issue as to uh, who has the exploration rights, and that has yet to be worked out too. I mean, advocates of that say that the drilling techniques, and we've even had some prominent environmentalists at the Commonwealth Club say that it's not the extraction that's the problem, that the drilling has become much less intrusive to wildlife, et cetera. It's, it's the burning. Would you agree with that? Well, I, we, it's, a, it's a hostile environment no matter what. Uh, and so it, there's always the increased uh, risk of uh, accidents uh, just because there will be wintertime refreezing of, of the installations that are, uh, you know, semi-permanent. And so I, I think that there's, uh, because of the environment, there's always the chance for uh, spills and uh, uh, unanticipated difficulties in extraction. But uh, it's very clear that if there is petroleum and it makes its way into the world energy market, uh, it'll en- end up as carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And uh, that certainly is a long-term uh, prospect that we shouldn't look forward to. How will reductions in ice affect weather, such as wind and rain? How will the reduction of ice affect weather? Well, already we're seeing uh, climate change 
impose itself in, in many ways. Of course, the loss of ice is just one. Uh, we are, we're seeing that as the atmosphere warms, their ability to hold water vapor increases. The warmer the atmosphere is, the more water vapor it, it can hold and eventually drop uh, as precipitation. So we're seeing uh, more intense precipitation events that uh, are really of a scale that's dramatic. Uh, New York City had a, a single rainstorm two years ago that uh, dropped something like eight inches in a few hours on Central Park. And the previous record from a century ago was only two inches. And that, I think, came during a hurricane that had blown up the, the East Coast. Uh, you recall the, the major floods in Iowa uh, mm -hmm. just uh, a year ago that came from as much as 20 inches of precipitation in three or four days. So these intense precipitation events uh, are becoming a, uh, a greater and greater occurrence, more frequent occurrence. And uh, in terms of what uh, the loss of ice specifically will do, uh, it uh, has influence on ocean currents, and particularly in the Arctic, where the I'll take a, a little side trip. The Arctic is much warmer than the Antarctic, in part because the currents in the Atlantic Ocean carry warm water to the north. We call that the Gulf Stream. And, in fact, uh, they go so far north and wrap around the, the north of Scandinavia and into the Arctic Ocean that the Russian port of Murmansk is an ice-free port year-round, uh, even though it's well north of the Arctic Circle. And uh, the reason that the Gulf Stream can flow north into the Arctic uh, is that there has to be room for that new water to enter. And the way the Arctic Ocean accommodates, makes space for it, is to have cold water sink and flow along the bottom of the ocean going south. And so you have a big conveyor belt of ocean currents uh, with warm water going north of the surface and cold water going south. Now, with the loss of ice in the Arctic Ocean, the, you're seeing changes in the dynamics there, uh, in part because there's a lot more fresh water coming into the Arctic Ocean from the Asian rivers that feed the Arctic Ocean and uh, from the melting of the permafrost. And so you're putting a lot of fresh water into the Arctic. And fresh water is less dense than salt water. That means it sits at the top. It doesn't want to sink. And as you lose summer sea ice, the sunshine, instead of being reflected back to space, uh, is now falling on dark ocean water and warming it up. And warm water is more buoyant than cold water. And so both fresh, warm water uh, phenomena in the Arctic uh, is it has the potential to slow down the sinking of, of water to the bottom and therefore slow down the, uh, the Gulf Stream in bringing fresh water or warm water north. So the potential for altering ocean currents is real, but again, the, the timetable for that, there's been no uh, you know, extensive set of observations that suggest that the currents are even slowing down, and most calculations about it say that uh, throughout the 21st century, it's not likely to be a serious problem. Beyond that, it could be. Let's stick with water uh, in terms of fresh water. You mentioned some of the melting ice pack and its impacts on rivers, and that would affect, I think you said, one-third of the, of the people in the world. Could you unpack that a little bit? How is that going to unfold, and what, what kind of alternatives will there be for uh, fresh water sources? It's a big worry uh, for a lot of countries. I, I'm more familiar with the 
the Andean countries because I, I travel to South America on my way to the Antarctic frequently. And uh, the west coast of South America is basically a coastal desert. And yet it's amazingly productive agriculturally because of the irrigation that's possible from the mountain uh, snow and ice melting. And so the, the vineyards of Chile and the, the uh, uh, flower beds and, and, and such that we find uh, being exported uh, to North America and Europe uh, the possibility of, of losing that agriculture uh, is very real because the the uh, seasonal snowfall is not enough to provide all the water that that agriculture currently uses. And so uh, once the mountain glaciers are gone, uh, the Andean countries are, are facing a real issue. Uh, whether there is replacement water is a big question. Uh, where does it come from? Uh, do you drill a tunnel through the Andes and bring it in from uh, the, the Brazilian rainforest. Uh, that's a titanic engineering project. And uh, for Chile, that doesn't do much because it's adjacent to Argentina and already Argentina in its, uh, in its uh, western parts is very arid and not a great source of, of water either. So I think we're, we're seeing big problems that I don't see any obvious solution the only possibility might be as if we hurry up and learn how to desalinate water from the sea uh, efficiently and with a, a sufficient uh, economy, uh, we might be able to draw seawater uh, inland to do the irrigation that currently the mountain glaciers and, and winter snowfall do. And also the energy intensity, I think, is that part of you talking about? It's very energy intensive to desalinate uh, salt water. Uh, we reached the point where we have just one last question, uh, and this is from the audience saying, is there anyone keeping track of the changing projections that are always sooner than projected? There's lots of uh, different scientific voices out there, and the news always seems to be uh, things are happening more dramatically sooner. So is there a way to sort of so people can look to, to to keep track of all that or any institution doing that? Not that I know of. Uh, there is no uh, institution that is uh, kind of gathering all the independent projections. One, uh, of course, if you are a voracious reader of the scientific literature, you can keep on top of it. Uh, but there are very few people who have the time or the inclination to do that. So I think that it's, it's impressionistic. But you're absolutely right that there are no projections that are saying that the IPCC was uh, uh, over-alarmist. Uh, all projections that I know are predicting uh, an accelerated ice loss, an accelerated melting, uh, and they say that the IPCC uh, has to be given uh, the status of a, a minimal estimate, uh, that all new projections are exceeding what the IPCC said. Well, I want to add on, on one light note. We have a question which I hope, think is in jest. Uh, does this mean my martinis will be warm? <laughs> uh, well, of course, uh, your martinis are usually cooled in the refrigerator or with an ice cube, perhaps. And so with enough energy, we could make ice. But uh, I think that's... Maybe you would even want to do that to keep your martini chilled. Start a new trend, warm martinis. Our thanks to Henry Pollock, professor of geophysics at the University of Michigan for his comments today on a world without ice, man's impact on climate change. And now this program of Climate One is adjourned.